It's a good morning. It's a family morning. Got a lot going on today. We have baptisms. We have new members. We have a congregational meeting coming up that we're really excited about. Uh, three fun things that I want to go ahead and tell you about about that congregational meeting uh, coming up. The three big things that we're going to talk about as a church family. Uh, the first is that our elders are proposing that we, that Ben, Nathan, and I, um, move more on staff than we have been. Does that make sense? We've all had part-time jobs. Um, some of you know about a multimedia ministry that we, Nathan and I helped start and that we run. And you also know that the church has hired on Nathan over the past couple of months. We want that to not change. Okay, so we're excited about that. Nathan and I and Ben are all going to leave that multimedia ministry and come on more online with the church. That's going to present... Uh, an opportunity for the church to have some faith because it's going to involve some risk. We're moving about $100,000 of our collective salaries into the church. And so we're going to propose a budget for the first time in the history of this very short history of this church that's going to have a little bit of a deficit to it. We have money saved up, but we're excited. And the elders have been pushing and encouraging this and believe that we can handle this as a church. So that's something to think about and be praying about. We'll talk more about that as we get closer and then as the day comes. And then the third thing, which is also really exciting and something to be praying and thinking about, is that the YMCA has been talking to us about building a new space in this vacant lot right here, together, as a partnership. That could be a really cool opportunity for us, provide us with a lot more ability to grow and to have use of space. And so we're talking about what that could mean, what that could look like, what that could be, praying about how far we want the, our partnership with the Y to extend and to continue. Um, but it could be really, really cool. It could be a great opportunity for not just the immediate future, but the reasonable long term as we think about where we want to be and what we want to be as a church. So we'll talk more about that too. So those are cool, exciting things, right? Yeah. All right. Romans. Romans 1-11 is about what? It's about our relationship with God. All of Romans 1-11, it's, you can think of it as being vertical, right? Us and our relationship with God and our restoration, our reconciliation to God. Romans 12, we pivot, we turn a corner some. And in Romans 12, we begin to focus on what it means for us to have a relationship with one another, horizontally, that reflects our relationship with God. And it reflects our relationship with God for a couple of reasons. One's because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts and into our lives, and that heals us and transforms us and changes us. And another is because we then begin to express that love, pour out that love into the lives of others as we imitate the love that God the Father has for us. So Romans 12 begins this whole new section where throughout Romans 1 through 11, We've been in these fights, these arguments, extended arguments. Like when we jump back into the end of Romans 11, we were in the middle or towards the end of an argument that began all the way back in Romans chapter 9. So we've had these long arguments about theological things with a lot of heavy terms. Terms like predestination and sanctification and justification and election and glorification, all these theological terms. We've been opening up and explaining and trying to understand what they mean and how it all works, and how it works in our relationship with God. Well, we turn to Romans 12, and now all of a sudden, the focus has shifted entirely to our relationships with one another, as reflected by our relationship with God. And so this morning, we have a passage that hits very, very differently. It's not a big, long argument. 
it's a picture that he's painting of what the Christian life looks like, which is a life of love. And so it's a picture of what love looks like, but it's in these one-liners like Proverbs. And so the part of uh, what could happen this morning if we're not careful is it could be very overwhelming because he's just going to be like, boom, 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 just hitting us over and over and over again with all of these things that we're now supposed to do and to be, how we're supposed to treat each other and interact with one another, how we're supposed to love one another. And so as we get into this passage, we're going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to slow down and go line by line and spend a little time on each line. And as we do, you know, sometimes some of you ever find your minds wandering in a sermon, right? Oh, the preacher said something that made me think a thing and that made me think another thing. And then, oh, crap, now I'm lost and I feel guilty. Yeah? Yeah? Never, never David. David's always clued in. This morning is a morning where that's okay. Because <laughs> there's going to be a lot and a lot of different things, Okay? And you're not going to be able to take away everything, probably, unless you're a genius like David, okay? But let, come to this morning's passage and this morning's sermon with humility. Let God speak. Let God address the sin in your heart that needs to be addressed. And be willing to live there and sit with it for a while as we hit it, okay? And maybe, maybe what that means is you're just going to be with me the whole way, and that would be great. But maybe there's something this morning that's especially for you. And you need to not pass over it as we keep moving. That's okay too, okay? Romans 11, beginning, or sorry, 12, beginning in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay. This is a picture of the Christian life. It's a picture of the life of love. Feel it? See it? Okay? Now one piece at a time. Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. We start with love because the whole passage is about love. It's what love looks like over and over again from different angles. Sort of what he's doing is like if love is a diamond, let's just hold it up to the light and kind of keep turning it. And if we keep turning the diamond, we're going to see different facets. And everyone's going to sparkle in its own little way. We need to see the whole picture. So, okay, let love be genuine. Let it be real. Let it be sincere. Which means what? Well, it means that we're going to be tempted for our love for one another to be fake. 
This is a passage about what it looks like to be the household of God, what it looks like to be the family of God, what God wants of us. If we are his adopted children, then we're family, and we need to live that way. We need to learn to live that way. And a lot of times it's real easy to come into a church and think, well, I just come into church, I come, I show up, I consume, and I put on a smile, and I have some cheerful words or some Christian words that I say, but there are no real relationships here, and I don't want there to be. But that's not what we're supposed to be. We've been adopted into God's household, and God's church is God's family. And so this is a picture. We're a young church, and this is a picture of what God wants Church of the King to be, and how we, each one of us, must live if we're going to be the family that God is calling us to be. And we're going to be tempted, he says, to let our love be fake, to let it be superficial, to let it be hypocritical. Other translations say, let love be without hypocrisy. Don't be hypocrites in your love. Don't fake it. There's a world of people who will imitate love and cultivate the appearance of love, but don't have the real thing. And they don't want to. And it's all over the place. It's not just in churches, although it is. One place I see this a lot is actually in young couples, young families. So here's what happens. Boy meets girl. Johnny meets Susie. And Johnny and Susie feel like they just click. Like, every, like they're finishing each other's sentences, like they're just like made for each other. They get off to a great start. They have a magical connection. So they get married. And then at some point, Johnny and Susie realize that the magical connection they thought they had was just the magical, the magical connection of two very similarly broken people being drawn together like magnets in a crowd. And what they were loving in each other was not the other person. The other person was just a broken mirror reflecting back themselves. And what they loved was their picture of themselves reflected back in this other broken person. And so now they're married. And they realize, I don't really know that I love this person. I don't know what to do about it. I don't know where to go from here. And so maybe also we have a baby now. And I don't know, I find it hard to love the baby. It's a very common thing to see happen. So they come to us, they come for counseling. And they're like, we're having trouble. The baby won't stop crying. For some, reason, for some reason, my wife stopped wanting to sleep with me. And when she does, she resents it. And my husband just wants to sit on the couch and play video games and be a loser and doesn't want to help do the dishes. So what do we do? And what they want is like, well, we don't want a divorce. We know that's bad, but we don't want a marriage either. What we want is just tell, tell me how to get what I want out of this relationship that I'm now stuck with. Tell me what hoops I can jump through in order to get what I want. Let me go read some books. Let me get some counseling. Tell me the things that look like love so I can imitate them in such a way that I get the formula right and I get what I want out of this relationship. Same with kids who are disobedient. Oh man, my kid's super disobedient. I don't know. I'm going to read some parenting books. I'm going to read some theory. I'm going to go to talk to the pastor or whatever. Give me the formula where I can plug it in and get the behavior that I want. And a lot of times in those young marriages and in those relationships with the kid, there's a deeper problem that has to be addressed. And it's lovelessness, actually. I had a conversation not long ago with an older man whose wife had recently died, and he confessed to me. 
as we were sitting talking about it, that he spent the last 40 years of his life fantasizing about the day his wife would die and what he would do and how he would let loose if and when that happened. And then it happened. He wanted to be free and find a woman who might love and respect him. That's what he thought. It was a loveless marriage on both sides with all kinds of problems, and they did a good job of faking it and hiding it for a really long time. Playing mind games, biding time, filling your heart with bitterness and regret, waiting and fantasizing about the person or thing that's going to come along and save you. Here's what it comes down to. Love actually has the best interests of the other person at heart. Love desires good for someone else. Love gives. It doesn't take. Everything else that's not love is about getting what I want from somebody else, from something else. How do I control it? How do I manipulate it? How do I get the results that make me happy? And then how bitter and angry can I be when I don't get what I want? So it's fake. It's fraudulent. It's a show of love without the substance. It's it's designed to get other people to give what you think you need. I know a family whose son, uh, uh, the dad, was the son of an alcoholic and a borderline alcoholic himself. And his family was not in a good condition. And the reality is he did not want to do the work of actually emotionally investing in his wife and kids. It's very common in homes that have been broken by alcohol. He was willing to do the work of making a show of it. So you tell him, well, you need to be more affectionate with your wife and your kids. You're like, okay. And then you'd see him start to hug and to kiss his wife and his kids and to be a little bit more. And then you could see him struggling with it. You could see him hating it. You could see him resenting it. And that's the moment, that's the point where the baby steps you take matter, where the rubber meets the road. That's the choice right there. Okay, I'm doing the hard thing. Am I, and I feel the resentment and I feel the pain of it and I feel the difficulty of it. Okay, so either I have to lean in and change and allow what I'm doing on the outside to change me from the inside out or I'll just shut off. And that's what he did. And you could see it happen. Just shut off. Go through the motions. Make a show. So his kids are grown now and they hate him. Because it was all fake. He did the things that looked like love. He's willing to do all the things that looked like love. But he wasn't willing to cultivate love in his heart. He wasn't willing to deal with his own pain. Love, for love to be sincere, you have to do the work that love requires. And that requires... Actually working on your heart, being sincere, and learning to be vulnerable. Because it's fear, it's a lack of vulnerability that stifles our love for one another. And that's why the invincible, unchangeable, unshakable love of God for us in Jesus is so essential to freeing us to actually love other people. Because in Jesus, we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. And when we can embrace that and grab a hold of that, it can free us from fear. The fear of rejection, the fear of being hurt, the fear of being vulnerable. It can give us the strength to be vulnerable because no matter what happens in this relationship or with that person, I am secure in the love of God for me in Jesus. That is how we begin to have the strength in the faith to let our love be genuine and sincere, to not fake it and to not accept fake love. There are all kinds of fakes and frauds out there, right? Things that can look and feel like love without being love. Proverbs 27, 6 says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Kisses can be fake. 
We already talked about church. A sermon can be full of fake love, can't it? Can't. How? Flattery. That's how. Last week, we had a, a great passage that was set up to make each one of us feel really good about being better and smarter than everybody else out there. It was. It was, it was a setup to feel really great about being better and smarter than everybody else out there in the world and all those other stupid churches that conform to the pattern of the world. Why? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we could have just talked all day long about all the ways where we, because of our beliefs, don't conform to this stupid world and are better than all the other churches that do. We could have done that. That would have been really easy, wouldn't it? been really easy. We believe in men and women. We believe that men are men and that women are women. We believe that marriage is for one man and one woman. We believe that children and sex should be inside the covenant of marriage. We believe it's wrong to murder babies. We could just go on and on and on about all the ways we're better and smarter and more righteous than everybody else out there. And it would be flattery. It would be about us feeling better about ourselves and being better and superior to everybody else out there. And that would have been fake love, wouldn't it? That's not what we need to hear. It's not love when a preacher preaches that way to you. Genuine love from the pulpit actually carries concern for you, for your soul. Places where each of us need to repent and grow and be more like Jesus. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. The kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Kisses lie. They can't. What looks like love is not always love. And sometimes what doesn't look like love, what doesn't feel like love, is the most loving thing that somebody can do for us. It's the kind of love that comes at its own expense. Sometimes if we love each other truly, we get punished for loving people. We pay the price ourselves. It's risky to truly love somebody. Because not everybody wants to be truly loved. So the Bible says in order to truly love people, you have to not care so much what people think. You can't love with a fake love. You can't be a hypocrite. You have to truly love one another from the heart with brotherly affection, as he'll say in a minute. But before we get there, we have to understand that truly loving each other requires discernment. Love and discernment goes hand in hand because love desires the good. So he says this, abhor what is evil, hold fast or cling to what is good. There's a lot of love out there or so-called love that is undiscerning. That's not willing to distinguish between good or evil. But love desires what's good. And in order to desire what's good, you have to know the difference between good and evil. And you have to be willing to see it and discern it. So the world will tell you that in order to love someone who's in sexual rebellion against God, what do you have to do? You have to affirm their lusts. You have to celebrate their, their perversions. You have to accept their lifestyle. And that's what the world says is love. And it's not love. It's tolerance. A kind of tolerance that enables self-destruction, but not love. Tolerance is love without discernment. It's not love, because love desires the good. And that means love has to see evil and hate it, and hold fast to what is good, and promote what is good. Love wants what's truly good for you. And that's why love doesn't flatter. It's willing to call a spade a spade. It's willing to see. It has open eyes. They say love is blind. Love is not blind. Love requires and demands open eyes. Because we have to be thoughtful and careful and discerning and truly promoting what is good in each other's lives and not enabling what is harmful or evil or destructive or false. To truly love one another, we must be truth seekers. We must be committed to rooting out the lies in our own lives. And we need to be committed to freeing each other from the lies that we believe. So love pursues discernment. It rejects naivete. 
It learns to hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Hate sounds strong, doesn't it? But it's not. It's just what goes hand in hand with love. If you love truth, you hate lies. If you love your your family, you hate any threat to your family. If you love the weak and the vulnerable and the needy, you hate predators. It's just the way it works. There are things Scripture says God hates. Examples? All kinds of things. How about lying lips? God's a God of truth. Proud and haughty hearts. God is a God who stoops to dwell with the meek and the lowly. To think otherwise is to be naive, and and naivete is not love. Love sees. Love wants to see. Love doesn't close its eyes. Love isn't blind. There are tons tons of good examples about this when it comes to the mission field. Uh, If you care about missions, foreign missions, doing good in other countries, there are a few books that you can read that will give you better perspective than a book called When Helping Hurts. To do good to other people, you actually have to care enough to think and be discerning about what helps and what hurts. And when what you think is helpful is actually hurtful. So hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. That's the third one. Discernment takes work. It takes effort. You have to learn it and you have to exercise it. And when you do, what happens? Well, it can cause some pain. So what will drive you to embrace that level of pain? What will motivate you to embrace the pain and the sacrifice that true love, discerning love, requires? Brotherly affection will motivate and push you into that. And there's a flip side of that too. And that's that when we begin to learn discernment, when we begin to distinguish between good and evil, what's often the first thing to go? Brotherly affection. Why? Because it's hard for us to love with both real affection and real discernment. Because affection drives us to be discerning. Discernment together with affection makes us vulnerable. We have to exercise tough love and we have to care both at the same time. And that can lead us to do what? We're either going to shut off our brains and our discernment or we're going to callous our hearts. Affection makes us vulnerable. Affection can make us vulnerable to tell lies, to tell people what they want to hear. Well, we can't tell lies, so let's harden our hearts. Let's stifle and kill our affection and become good truth tellers and bad, bad lovers, brothers, sisters with no real genuine love and no affection. They have to go hand in hand. So when it comes to brotherly affection, who here uh, finds it easy to have affection for your brothers, like your actual brothers? Nobody. Good, I didn't think so. It's not easy, right? Where does brotherly affection come from? Brotherly affection. Let's talk about boys for a minute. Boys fight with one another. Boys get aggressive. They compete. They pick at one another. They try to prove themselves against one another. What do you think that is? When my boys are fighting or feeling edgy with one another, do you know what I often do? I'll take the instigator if I can get there before we're ready for discipline, right? Sometimes just discipline's the only way out. But if I can see it coming, I'll take the instigator and I'll take him outside and toss a football with him. Or we'll hit some balls off a tee. Or I'll give him a job to do that he can be proud of and come back to me and I can tell him that he's done a great job. A place where he can definitely succeed and feel like he's got some control and some power in his life and a place to use his energy to make dad proud and happy. 
Why? Because behind all the bickering and the fighting and the competing and the contention among boys, it's just a heart hungry for the love and respect of mom and dad. That's all. A little bit of affirmation, a little bit of purpose in meeting, a little bit of affection, a little bit of I'm proud of you, a place where we can do that solves a whole lot of problems for the rest of the day, often, actually. Who can give that? The Father. At home, it's me. That's my job. With us, what? You feel a lack of affection for your brothers or sisters, your husband or your wife or your kids. How do you cultivate it? You have to go to God. That's why brotherly affection is downstream of our reconciliation with God. It's the love of God poured out into our hearts that frees us and fills us with love for one another and, from, and frees us from the fear of what will happen when we make ourselves vulnerable because God's love doesn't change. So we have to go to God. Outdo one another in showing honor. It's the next one, honor. Why honor? Well, so long as we've been talking about boys and brothers, what is it that all boys and men crave? This is respect. You know how to make a man feel loved? You just show him honor. You honor him for his work. You honor him for his sacrifices, for his suffering, for the pain that he bears. It doesn't have to be much. A little bit goes a long way if it's sincere. How about women? Do we live in a world that honors women? Not for the right things. We live in a world that, uh, that objectifies women as sexual objects to be used and that refuses to honor the most wonderful and unique and beautiful gift that God has given to women, the ability to bear life. We hate kids and we hate motherhood. How do you honor women and hate their children or their ability to give them and care for them? Women aren't honored in our world. They're used and discarded and taught to be used and discarded. And told the most beautiful and special thing about how God made them is not so special at all. In fact, it's a liability that you got to kill. In the church, we must honor one another. We must outdo one another in showing honor. The church should be a place where women feel honored and respected and protected and where men are honored for doing that work. We want to be a church that honors the honorable. And that means we must outdo one another in showing honor. Showing honor for the fathers and husbands who lead their families well who work and sacrifice and fight to build up a house for God and to make their families safe and protected. For those who lead and serve to build up this congregation, for the wives and mothers who sacrifice their bodies and souls to bear and nurture and raise their little ones and make their households work. For the young men and women of all ages who give themselves to serving one another, to serving this church and this community. And honoring one another doesn't always have to look like some big thing. We don't need to throw a party and sing for he's a jolly good fellow and distribute medals and trophies. Sometimes, sometimes honoring one another is just listening and bending in one another's direction. At home, it can be as simple as listening and obeying mom immediately. How about that? She says it's time to eat, so you come to the table. It can be as simple as picking up the socks on the floor or putting the toilet seat down or getting dinner ready at a reasonable time or helping with the dishes. It can be as simple as helping pick up chairs after the service or getting here to help set up coffee. There's all kinds of ways we can show honor to one another. They say in churches, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. How does that work? Well, it works like this. Ben says, hey, I heard you can play guitar. Can you play guitar in the band on Sunday? Sure. Okay, cool. Well, now what that means is not you just show up and play guitar. It means that you come to rehearsal and you get here early. And then when you get here early, you're like the only people who are here early and all this, these chairs need to be set up, and 
this curtains and the thing and the platform and the sound gear and everything. So now you're the, you're the setup crew. And then all this stuff and your instruments, they got to be put away. And so you're the teardown crew. And so, yeah, you say, okay, I'll, I agree to play guitar and serve the church with my musical gifts. And you end up doing everything. And everybody else comes and it's like, oh, yeah, I don't know. The band wasn't that great today. See you guys. It's not hard to honor those who serve. A little bit of effort, a little bit of work, a little bit of open eyes, a little bit of we're all in this together. Many hands make for light work. It's like helping with the laundry. How hard is it to honor the person who does the laundry in your home if you have one of those? It's not that hard. Put your clothes in the hamper. I know about you two. (laughs) Everybody does their own laundry in the Jones household. That's how they solve the problem. Nobody has to honor anybody. Just take care of myself. That's fine. Some there's a place for that sort of thing. But if there is somebody who does the laundry, how hard is it to honor the person? All you have to do is put your clothes in the stupid hamper. Make sure that your socks aren't wadded up inside out and your clothes aren't inside out. That you put your clothes away when you get them instead of sit them in a pile by your bed next to the pile of dirty clothes that just sort of like, now we don't know what's what. It's just not hard. Little things that you can do and they add up and they go a long way. A little effort. But effort that has to be fanned into flame. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. How many of you get excited about doing little things like setting up chairs or helping with the dishes or doing your chores at home? We got one. Liar. Is it even possible to serve in small ways with zeal? It is. How? You have to remember that it's not just your brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers that you're serving. It's the Lord. And the Lord sees and knows and cares and rewards. It's easy when you're serving others to, see, to think about how small and stupid the little things you're doing are. And to worry that no one's ever going to notice or care. And then what are you doing? Well, you're just serving to be noticed. You begin to expect to be thanked. You begin to bear resentment for all the thankless things that you do and carry. Everybody wants to be appreciated. Nobody wants to be taken for granted. But when everybody's busy serving, it can feel like, well, we're being taken for granted. The time we spend in the nursery, the time at the soundboard or putting slides together or setting up chairs, the time at home folding clothes or mowing grass or changing furnace filters or fixing doors or sweeping floors or going into the app and pressing the vacuum button for your iRobot takes a lot of work. <laughs> All the little things you do at work or here in a public place, trying to leave a public restroom a little bit nicer place. It all adds up and it can turn into bitterness in our mouths unless we remember that we serve someone who always sees. And our service to others is service to him and it brings him glory. And he's pleased with us and that's enough. It's its own reward. It doesn't feel like that when I'm doing the thankless job that nobody thanks me for. Okay, well, you've got two choices. Your choices are to find fault with God who's given you good things in your life and little repetitive jobs that feel silly to you. Or you have to adjust your perspective and find some zeal. You guys remember being zealous about things when you were younger, being excited? It's that special thing that makes little things feel like they're nothing, right? All you had it at some point, I know you did. Men, when you were trying to win the hearts of your wives, 
Was it hard to think, oh, I should get flowers, I should, I should, what's your favorite candy, I'm going to, or ice cream? You approach things that you care about when you're on a mission with zeal, even the little things. The little things become, aren't so little anymore. They all matter. They all add up. They become like nothing. You had a goal. It was to get somewhere. Hopefully it was marriage. So the little things became nothings. You're fixated on a goal. So you have to readjust your perspective when it comes to the little things in your life. You have to remind yourself of the big picture. It's about God. And yeah, it doesn't always feel glorious or profound. But little things do add up. And honestly, I wonder if that's not when we're most like God. When we do the little things that nobody sees with joy and with zeal. Because there's nothing that God is not holding together at this moment. Day after day, tirelessly, thanklessly, but with real delight and real pleasure in the doing of it. God himself doesn't find it tedious to make sure the sun rose this morning. To make sure that there's oxygen to fill your lungs to make sure the rain falls when it needs to, all the time, so the crops grow, so there's food to eat. To keep the planet spinning, to keep everything moving, to be sure that all the birds have food, all the creatures in the rainforest that nobody ever sees, they got everything they need. He doesn't find it tedious. Day after day after day, year after year after year, He doesn't find it tedious to give a new sunrise every day and a new sunset. It's not boring to him. And he does it for a world of thankless people who don't care. And he doesn't need them to. He's just going to keep loving everybody. Going to keep doing it. That perspective can tune your heart to God. And when our hearts are tuned to, to God, we can fan some zeal into a flame. And little things can become nothings. Because little things actually do matter to God. He cares about us. He provides for us. He does all the little things that we take for granted all the time. And when we do the little things that get taken for granted, we become like God. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. So what do we need? We need hope. We need patience. We need prayer. Everybody is going through something. Everybody has the place in their life where their hope is being challenged, where their patience is being tested. It might be as small as just struggling to have hope and faith and patience for keeping up with the laundry. Is is laundry a big deal in your house? It kind of is in ours. We have nine people. Kind of adds up. In a house with nine people, with two teenagers and two almost teenagers, uh, you worry about the laundry. The younger kids don't matter. They wear the same clothes three days in a row, nobody notices. Probably wearing the same clothes they wore to school on Wednesday. But it adds up. Everybody's got something they're dealing with. It might be really small and silly. Oh man, I couldn't find the, I didn't have underwear this morning. Oh no. It might be something really big. Somebody died. Or their doctor is concerned about a medical issue and wants to run tests and the word cancer has been whispered. And there are all kinds of things like that with people that you might know and you might not know. You might have no idea. The world's a broken place. Faces suffering and trials without real, this world, everybody in it, they face suffering and trials without true and lasting hope because they don't know our God. But in God's house, among God's children, it's not that way because we know the God who's in control of everything. He stands above everything. And we have a hope that's secure for us in heaven, a sure promise that one day, 
we'll be free of all the suffering, all the pain, all the sin. And that gives us something to rejoice in, even in the midst of our greatest sufferings. And that gives us the ability to endure suffering and trials of all kinds with patience, because nothing comes our way except from God. Nothing that does come our way can separate us from his love. That drives us deeper and deeper into communion with God through constant prayer, if we let it, if we turn our hearts to him. And the reason he's telling us here to do that is because sometimes, even still as Christians, maybe lots of times, it's very tempting for us to go right back to the hopeless, impatient, godless way of thinking that we had before we knew Jesus. Something goes bad, and our hope goes out the window, our patience goes out the window, our faith goes out the window. He says, don't do that. Remember the hope you have. Rejoice in it. Be patient when you suffer. Be constant in prayer. Turn to God with your pain. Talk to him about your sufferings and your emotions and the things you're sad and angry about. Allow him to draw near to you and reshape how you think and reorder your heart to be more like Jesus. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And you will be like Jesus. And the people who are most like Jesus are people who have suffered a lot who have turned to him with their suffering when they've suffered. And it's grown their ability to lead and to care for other people and to serve. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. In the world we live in, money and resources are often used as leverage, as tools of power, to manipulate and to control. You're not to be that way. You're to be generous and hospitable. If God has blessed you, it's because God means to make you a blessing to others. And there is some way that God has blessed you. There's some way that you can use to be a blessing to others. You may not have the biggest house or the biggest bank account, but you have means. You have ways to give and be generous. If you don't have money, you have time. You have talents and abilities and gifts. You have people and connections and relationships. There are all kinds of ways that you can contribute to the needs of the saints if you have a mind to do it, if you have a heart to do it, if you have a will to do it, if you're willing to be open and generous with one another. So cultivate an open and generous heart. Look for needs and fill them. Money, job opportunities, acts of service. And be hospitable. Open your homes to one another. Open your hearts. Make people feel comfortable and welcome when they're new, when they walk into the doors of the church for the first time. Or to your men's group, or to women's group, or to, your, to play and pray, or to whatever it is. Give, because it is more blessed to give than to receive. And truly give, not expecting anything in return. I say this to my kids all the time, or I used to say it to my kids all the time. If everyone in our house is out for themselves, it's one versus eight. If everyone in our house is for each other, we have eight other people looking out for us, watching our back, and working for our good. Which is nicer, which is easier, which is better. In this church, we can all be out for ourselves, or we can be out for each other. When we're out for each other, things get better fast. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Okay, so the last one is focused on taking care of our own, the needs of the saints. Be open-hearted and hospitable to everyone. But what about our enemies? Bless them too. Don't curse them like you're tempted to. Bless them. Why? Because when you were God's enemy, Jesus climbed up on a cross and bore the pain and punishment that you deserve. That's why. And our enemies are just like we were. They're our enemies only because we represent the God they're rebelling against. It's not personal. It feels personal. It's an attack on us personally. That's what persecution is. But it's not about us, really. You've got to be able to see that. Take a step back. Separate yourself from it. They just want what they want, which is sin. 
we represent the God who says no. So they're going to take it out on us. It's normal. It's childish. It's immature. But it's normal. So here's a question. When someone punches you, what's your natural reaction? Punch them back? Is that what you said? That's right. Good job. But it's wrong, isn't it? Attack, counterattack. That's the way we operate. It's actually not wrong. Because what Scripture does here is give us a counterattack. It doesn't say don't do anything. It's actually a counterpunch. It doesn't say be passive, lay down, avoid conflict. It just says change your weapons. They attack with malice. We counterattack with love, with grace. They curse. We bless. And that is different than lying down. Lying down's weak. This isn't weakness. It's a whole different kind of strength. It's strength that can only come from God. I'm not saying there's not a time to defend yourself or the people you love. There's a time for that. The Apostle Paul does that plenty of times in Scripture itself where he's defending himself against attacks of those who would undermine God's truth. But that's not the same thing as returning evil for evil. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That's easy. Yeah? Find it easy to uh, shift gears and enter into the joys and sadnesses and sorrows of other people? It's not easy, is it? Every one of us in this room, I guarantee, has missed an opportunity to practice this kind of love because you're too caught up in your own problems or your own joys. And you don't even know it. You don't know how many times you've missed that opportunity. Someone was in rapture and deep sadness and you were just too lost in your own world, too self-absorbed. Rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep, that's difficult because it requires us to be emotionally healthy and strong ourselves and willing to get outside of ourselves and see other people. It requires us, it requires us to be free uninhibited by our own concerns, looking to the needs of others, or at least capable of temporarily setting our own needs aside because we're able and willing to see what's in front of us, which means we have to actually be living in communion with God and trusting God and casting our cares on him. Sometimes that's not always possible. Sometimes we're the ones who are hurting. There's not much we can do about it except let ourselves be loved by other people. When that happens to you, be patient and gracious and not demanding. It's hard. Everyone is suffering. Everyone has their own problems. Everyone's working against their own things. It's hard even to just sit there. Sometimes it's hard to rejoice with those who rejoice, but often it's our own sin that stands in the way. We're focused on ourselves so much, what we want, what we deserve. God blesses somebody else. It feels like he's taking from us. We get jealous. We get envious. We find it hard to just be happy for other people. You have to let it go and be free. Unthreatened without a need, without something to gain or to get, without an agenda. Secure in God's love for you so that you can minister God's love to others. So that we can reinforce the joy that our Father has in blessing his children when they're blessed. So that we can reinforce the sympathy and concern and care that our Father has for us in our pain and our suffering and our weakness. Live in harmony with one another. It's about unity and peace, right? They go hand in hand. Does Jesus care about unity? He does. He does. Go read John 17, the high priestly prayer before he's getting ready to leave this earth. See how many times he talks about how he prays for us to be one. We're a deeply divided nation. There are many things that threaten to divide our churches. 
And what we must do is be united in love, standing on God's truth. The principal goal of Satan is to divide. That's what he does. In the Garden of Eden, heaven and earth were in harmony. God and man were in harmony. Adam and Eve were in harmony. So what did he do? He comes between Adam and Eve, and that comes between man and God, and that creates a gap between heaven and earth. He divides. It's what he does. And part of how he divides is he questions God's truth. What does he say to Eve? Did God really say, no, you won't surely die? He lies. He undermines the truth in order to divide. And he does the same thing in our churches, in our marriages. He seeks to divide us. He questions. He undermines the truth. He tells blatant lies. He builds up factions. He pits us against one another and ultimately against God. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Don't be haughty. Don't be proud. Don't be disdainful. A haughty person is somebody who feels himself superior to everyone else, who stands apart, who's set aside, who looks down on everyone from their great height of superior judgment or wealth or intelligence or success or beauty or class or whatever it is that makes them feel superior. They're above you. They want to be above everybody else. They will not be under anybody, and God hates that. Why? Because when Jesus came, he came to the lowest of the low. He left heaven and became a man. He was the king of heaven and he made himself nothing. And he subjected himself to a life of misery and persecution and pain at the hands of the very people he created. And ultimately, he climbed up on a cross and suffered a humiliating, torturous death for the sins of the world. And so God doesn't have much patience for those who think that they look down on other people. They have a right to look down. When Jesus came and got beneath us all. And when we're haughty and we act like we're something, when we're too good for other people, what we are doing is despising Jesus. And we're declaring to the world and to our brothers and sisters that either Jesus is too good for them or we're too good for Jesus. If you had been there, if that's you, if you had been there, you would have missed Jesus. You would have been the one saying crucify him. And you think because you're so superior, you would have recognized his superiority, but you wouldn't. It's a lie. Don't judge one another by the world's standards and set yourself apart by class, by ethnicity, by money, by intelligence, by anything else that is just a gift that God gave to you and can take away. Judge by character. Move to the lowly. Be like Jesus. Because you were low. You were trapped and caught in your own sin. You had judgment hanging over your head. And Jesus moved to you. Never be wise in your own sight. Being wise in your own sight is the definition of being a fool. The wise are humble. The wise are eager to learn. The wise are willing to be corrected. The wise are looking to grow. Fools are self-satisfied. They think they know something. They think they're God's gift to you, and they won't hesitate to tell you so. Fools who are wise in their own sight have judgments about everything, especially about the things that they have no right to make judgments about. And they'll oppress everybody with their judgments. They talk, and they talk, and they talk in their great wisdom because they're convinced people care what they have to say, and they don't. Nobody cares. Have you ever been around somebody like that? They're insufferable. The wise are quick to listen and slow to speak. Those who are wise in their own sight, those are the people that are just, you can tell, they're just waiting for you to shut up so they can start talking again, dispensing their wisdom and their judgments because they're fools. If you're the kind of person who has something to say about everything and you don't know how to keep into your own lane, that might be you. If you make it a habit to sit in judgment on people who are experts in their field, you might have this problem. We call it being a sports fan. 
We sit around and we make judgments that people who are paid millions of dollars to do a job they would never let us volunteer for as if we know better and would do better. I, uh, I learned that lesson in a new way a couple years ago. I play baseball. I think I'm smart, kind of a smart guy. I think I know ba- baseball better than most people, most dads. I became friends with an MLB coach. I know nothing about baseball. <laughs> and it's amazing the level of insight and knowledge that somebody who actually knows what they're talking about can have. It's humbling. You don't know the things that you think you know. You don't know the things that you don't know. The wise understand, and fools don't. Fools think they have the right to judge in matters that are too great for them. So don't be a fool. Don't be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Okay, we're starting to wrap things up here. As Paul begins to wrap things up, he's going to talk about just living at peace. He starts by saying, repay no one evil for evil. Evil doesn't overcome evil. Evil can only overcome or be overcome with good. When someone hurts us, our instinct is to repay them in kind, to exercise justice on our own behalf, to scale it up, to get vengeance, to get some retribution, to get a little bit more. It's easy to do. It's reflexive. Someone punches, we punch back, and we punch back harder. Someone's nasty online, we come back harder. We don't even have to feel the blow. We can just imagine someone going to a bad place in their mind We're already ready to punish them for what we don't know that they didn't do. God says, no, it's not good. That's not honorable. Think about how how to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Look at who's watching. In the sight of all, right? Look who's watching. Don't be petty. Be honorable. Who's watching? God is watching. Your kids are watching. Your family's watching. Your brothers and sisters in Christ who look up to you are watching. People who might stumble. Your non-Christian friends and family and neighbors and co-workers who should be seeing Jesus when they look at you instead of a jerk. Watching. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's the goal, peace. So far as it depends on you. Does it all depend on you? No. Can you be at peace with everybody? No. No, you can't. If you think you can, you're a liar. There's at least one person you can't be at peace with, and that's you. Because if you're at peace with all men, you're at war with God, and you're at war with truth, and you're fundamentally dishonest. And I don't know how you can betray yourself that much, your thoughts, your feelings, and convictions that much as a people pleaser, and have any real peace with yourself. You can't. But insofar as it does depend on you, live peaceably with all. Be kind, be gentle, be patient, be humble. Be faithful, be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger, quick to forgive, quick to ask forgiveness. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Okay, this is continuing that thought, but it's a different angle on vengeance. It's a different take on repaying evil for evil. Part of the reason we don't take our own vengeance is because we are to leave room for the wrath of God. Because God's a good father, and that means he protects his children and he avenges them. And what we want to do is love our enemies as we have been loved and pray for them and pray that they'll be reconciled to God or simply leave it in God's hands to deal with in God's time and God's way. And sometimes God's way is vengeance, actually. I was talking to a dad earlier this week about somebody he'd been praying for, a family member who he considered to be a threat to his daughter. Enough of a threat that he had had to draw clear, hard lines. The threat died this week. It wasn't what he prayed for. It was God's answer. Sometimes it works that way. 
To be Christians is to see and understand both sides at the same time. And to thank God for his good answers to our prayers. We look around us, we look at this world, we look at all the evil and the sin in it, and we think we gotta do something, there are things to do when it comes to us. And it gets or feels personal, we feel the same way. We wanna take matters in our own hands, and God just says, be still, chill out, I've got this. There is no evil that will not be repaid, none. There is nothing he doesn't see. There is no evil that won't be repaid with perfect justice. And that perfect justice will be executed either on the cross of Christ or in eternal wrath. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. They punch, we counterpunch. But we don't counterpunch with evil, we counterpunch with love, good, grace. When's the last time you've seen and noticed that your enemy needed something and you've just gone and met the need? It's hard to imagine sometimes. We often imagine our enemies are out there somewhere. They're in Washington, D.C. They're in Hollywood. They're somewhere else. Maybe you have somebody to work with, though, that's antagonistic to you or antagonistic to God. In any case, here's the principle. When you were God's enemy, did he still make the sunshine? He did. Did he still make the rainfall? He did. Did you still have food to eat and clothes to wear? He did. He did. Go and do likewise. Be like your Father in heaven. Treat your enemies the way God treated you when you were his enemy. Kill them with kindness. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, Paul says in Romans chapter 2, you remember? Maybe, maybe it will be the kindness of God through you that leads your enemies to repentance. That makes them question, that makes them squirm that disrupts their narrative about you and about God. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Other translations do not overcome evil with evil, but I like this a lot, and here's why. When we try to overcome evil with evil, what happens? We're the ones who are overcome. We're the ones who lose. Nobody wins. Everybody loses. You just get eaten up. You get eaten up by evil, the evil you allow to consume your heart, your anger, your pride, your bitterness, your rage. And it will destroy you and it will overcome you and it will destroy your family if you're not careful. How do we overcome evil? With good. That's how we win. Not bitterness, not anger, but love. Forgiveness. Put to death the old you. It's dead already anyway. You were headed for the wrath of God. You were miserable. You were consumed with evil. Overcome evil with good. Hey, listen. All of these things are written here as a command for a reason. They're commands that are here for a reason. God means for you to obey them. He expects you to. He expects you to listen. He expects you, if you have any spiritual life in all in you, to say, yeah. That life, the Christian life, the life of love is beautiful and good. And that's what I want. I can make that my life's aim. That's the life of the Christian. That's the life of the love. That's what I want my life to be. And so he wants you to look at that and say, by the spirit of God who is at work in me, I will put my old self to death. I will put my sin to death. I will walk in this way. God help me though I fall, I will rise and I will keep on moving. I will crawl until I can walk. I will walk until I can run. I will run with a limp if a limp's what I've got. But I will make this my aim and I will trust that the God who did not hold back Jesus but gave him up for us all 
means to work in and through me and to transform my life so that I can walk in this way. Because he does. This is not here to make you hopeless. This is here to fill you with hope. Your life can look like this, but you have to do the work. You have to put your sin to death and you have to come to Jesus and you have to ask for help and you have to get up and keep going every time you fall. You have to pray and ask God to transform you by the renewing of your mind, day by day, moment by moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word to us. We pray that you would be near to us now and that you would bless us as we go to welcome new members and to baptize. In Jesus' name, amen.